Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Welcome once again to our podcast. I'm John Murphy, and this is Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, where we talk about two of everybody's favorite topics here in upstate New York, the Bills and the beer. It is a pleasure to talk about both topics these days, especially to talk about the Buffalo Bills. This is podcast number 13. we got a good one, too. Going to be joined by ESPN's Kevin Connors in a moment. He, I think, is he's an emerging star on ESPN. He's been there for a dozen years, a host on SportsCenter, an anchor. He does more and more play-by-play, doing a lot of college basketball these days. He's a native of Long Island, Rockville Center, New York. He is a huge fan of the Buffalo Bills. He's not shy about it either on ESPN or on Twitter. We'll talk with Kevin Connors about that, about the Bills, about their 10-point win over the Chargers this past weekend, and about what may lie ahead for the Buffalo Bills. Also on the show today, come some beer talk with Peter Kreinheader, the man behind Ellicottville Brewing Company here in western New York. Great stories about his start, how he got Ellicottville Brewing Company off the ground, got him going, where they go from here. I think you're going to like hearing from him. I think most of you like the fact that the Buffalo Bills are 8-3 and three with five games to go. As I've said the last several weeks, they're on a pace to win 11 games. Looks like they're headed towards their first AFC East Division title in 25 years. Nothing settled yet. Still have to play well. They did play well overall last Sunday, picking up their eighth win. A 10-point victory coming out of the bye as they beat the talented but underperforming Los Angeles Chargers. Got a couple of thoughts on Sunday's game. Let's start with the Buffalo defense. They allowed just 17 points to a team that averaged 10 points more than that per game coming in. Now the Bills gave up some yards, but really not when it counted. The Bills defense was outstanding on third down. The Chargers never converted a third down after the first quarter. Yeah, they made some fourth downs, but Los Angeles failed on 11 consecutive third down attempts after the first quarter. Most of that, I think, because of pressure, pass rush. Now, they only sacked young Justin Herbert three times, but they were in his face most of the day. Jerry Hughes, A.J. Klein, several others provided constant, consistent pressure. And the Bills did it without extensive blitzing. They are blitzing a little bit more often now than they did earlier this season. But I think we're watching a return to form from a defense that seems to be getting better at the best possible time. Got a thought or two on A.J. Klein, a veteran journeyman linebacker. He had an amazing stat line from the game, 14 tackles, three of them for losses, one and a half sacks, two quarterback hits, one pass defense. This is a backup. He's a backup. He's only playing because Matt Milano was hurt. Now, Milano may come back next Monday, and he should play when he is ready, but A.J. Klein has has found a way to contribute to the Buffalo defense. He'll never be the outstanding coverage linebacker, the playmaker that Milano has become, mostly because Klein lacks speed. He struggles in coverage, but he makes up for it, Klein does, with his smarts. I watched he and Micah Hyde sort out a situation in the second quarter. About five minutes into the second quarter Sunday, Chargers came out with two backs, Austin Eckler and Joshua Kelly, both in the backfield for the first time in Sunday's game. A new look, new keys for the Buffalo defenders. If you watch closely, you can see Klein and Micah Hyde identify it, point it out, sort it out. Klein uh, had Eckler covered on the run to the left side. He held him to a two-yard gain. A.J. Klein is smart. He can figure it out. And he's figured out a way to contribute to a rapidly improving Buffalo defense. Bill's offense found its legs in the running game Sunday, 172 yards on the ground, 5.7 yards per carry. I think you saw a new commitment to the running game from the coaching staff. They ran it 30 times against 25 pass attempts. Of course, a new look up front on the offensive line, Mitch Morse back in the lineup after missing a few. He was outstanding, his athleticism on display at center. And John Feliciano was just great at left guard. He played a great game. I think you saw more of an attack mode, a better attack mode from both running backs. Rookie Zach Moss and second-year man Devin Singletary. So this is hopefully not the last or the best the Bills will get from their rushing offense this season. There's more room for improvement. I got one more observation, and that's about the coaching mismatch in Sunday's game. You don't often see it so clearly defined. Chargers head coach Anthony Lynn is a great guy. I know him a little bit, love him. He was here a couple years on Rex Ryan's staff. But it seems like Anthony Lynn just can't seem to pull it together with the Chargers. You look at all those losses by one score or less, going into the Bills game, big shakeup on their coaching staff on the special team side of things with the special teams coordinator being demoted. 
just doesn't seem to come together for LA. Sunday against the Bills, it all spilled out. Indecision about what to do on critical third and fourth downs. Bad clock management. Apparent confusion on the sidelines. In stark contrast, you look at the Buffalo sideline. Sean McDermott, he has people in place upstairs in the coaches' booth to help with the tough decisions. You know, when to call a timeout, when to go forward on fourth down. You get quick input from assistants to make suggestions. Input based on analytics, on game flow. You know, game management, I think, has become one of Sean McDermott's strengths. They even want a replay review. They got a call change first time this year. McDermott's game management has been refined over his three and a half years in Buffalo. It is improved, and it is an underrated asset for the Bills with the playoffs looming ahead. Well, that's enough for me. How about a national perspective? We're going to get it. We're ready to talk with Kevin Connors of ESPN when we return on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. Our guest is Kevin Connors from ESPN, a sports center anchor, a versatile uh, play-by-play man and broadcaster at ESPN. He's been with ESPN for, I think, 12 years, if I'm not mistaken. Kevin, thank you very much for coming on. The reason why you're on our podcast, not only are you an ESPN anchor and sports center anchor, you're a Bills fan, right? Murph, I prefer the other order. I'm a Bills fan and I'm an ESPN and sport. Now, yes, a big-time Bills fan. And I love the fact that we're talking – you know, we've done this over the years, yeah. and the circumstances in terms of wins and losses have been very different. So I like where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody just mentioned to me uh, in my house, and we got the, some family members over. Somebody said they were sort of reflecting today, this morning. They said, it's so different this year. We're, we're not talking about if the Bills make the playoffs, what do they have to do to make the playoffs. Now we think about it like uh, when they make the playoffs, who will they face? You know what I mean? It's, and it, it's only a couple of years where that's been the case where you think about the Bills differently, isn't it? And isn't it amazing, too, you know, the, when your expectations change, they really change. Like, you know, years past it would have been, hey, we won that game or we pulled it out and, and maybe, you know, maybe the worm is turning. Now it's like we're not satisfied when we beat the Chargers by 10 points or when we beat Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. You know, these are, these are quality wins against, you know, pretty good teams. So, but look, it's, here's the other thing, Murph. It's, it's the reality of where we are. And I, look, I said at the beginning of the year, I said anything short of winning the division is a disappointment. And it's not a bad thing to have expectations. So I'm glad to see people having them and I'm glad to see the Bills fulfilling them. Kevin Connors, ESPN, is our guest. Kevin, it's it's a great story. You've told me once uh, before when we were talking about uh, how you, a native of Long Island, Rockville Center, New York, how you became a Bills fan. Can you tell that story to our audience today? I'll tell it in as quick a way as possible. So you're right. I grew up on Long Island, Jets and Giants territory. And believe me, you know, especially the years that I was going to junior high school and high school, the Giants were a big deal. I mean, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, this is 87. And then, of course, uh, you know, 90, what well, was Super Bowl 25? What was that? 90, 90, 90, yeah. So, I mean, I'm in my prime of, of, uh, of, of junior high, high school, college years. And of course the Giants had those great runs with Bill Parcells and, and of course, Lawrence Taylor. So, yeah. So look, my dad's from central New York. He's from just outside of Utica, small town called Ilian. He grew up a big, big AFL fan, still proudly talks about being an AFL fan. And obviously, as a central New Yorker, he's a Bills fan. So here I am. I've, I, I have pictures of myself wearing O.J. Simpson jerseys on Christmas morning and wearing the old school Bills helmets, which are now in vogue again. They're the ones we wear now. So when they were uh, yesterday, way, exactly. Yeah. So I look. I, I, I go. I go way back, and and uh, I've been a huge fan of the team. Um, you know, since the time, I, since since as far back as I can remember. Yeah. Uh, you told me, uh, did that continue? You went to Ithaca College to play basketball, right? Down, right down the road here at Ithaca. You were still a Bills fan then, I presume, huh? Oh, oh, big time. In fact, one of my, just by happenstance, a guy who I became friends with uh, is, is a, a big Bills fan. So that was back in the day where we would get the Bills games locally. You know, you got to remember, you know, this is long before Sunday NFL ticket when I'm growing up on Long Island. I'm at the mercy of what we get on the local affiliates, and it's going to be the Jets and Giants nine times out of 10. So I was limited to maybe getting highlights on Monday night football, or, or maybe if I was lucky getting to see the bills 
uh, in prime time. So it wasn't as easy being a Bills fan by that. You, you know, you were really, Murph, how's this for, for things coming full circle? I was at the total mercy of watching games on NFL primetime with Chris Berman and getting to see the highlights that way of the Bills. And now I get to see Boomer in the hallways of ESPN. And every time I see him, we talk Bills football. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the really, really neat parts of my job. This is one of the things I was thinking about. We had uh, Chris Berman on our on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it struck me today how uh, at ESPN you're a national sportscast with a national following, and you're professional and you're you're unbiased. And yet, I think ESPN's done a great job of letting you people like you and Chris Berman and others kind of follow their 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 favorite teams and root for their favorite teams. It it works, doesn't it? It does for me. You know, look. I wonder if it would be different, Murph, if I was a Cowboys fan or, you know, or, or a Steelers fan where they're good all the time and people say, hey, look, I'm a Yankees fan and it might come across as a little obnoxious if I'm saying we've won 26 world championships. I, I, will, I will grant you that it's a little bit easier when you're saying it because there's almost sort of a, wow, you got to respect that guy feeling to being a Bills fan. But I look, I'll tell you this. I wouldn't want it any other way because I am such a big fan. And I, I think that that's what I'd like to hope that that's what people who are watching uh, want because they're the same way. Now you can't be so in the bag for your team where your reporting is biased, but I don't mind telling people all the time, our Buffalo bills or saying America's team or, Hey, we've done this. I don't mind doing it. And if viewers are upset with it, all I can tell you is it's genuine. I really am a fan. It certainly comes across. Kevin, uh, Bills with eight wins now, their most we recent uh, win against the Chargers uh, on Sunday. Give me your thoughts on that game now with an 8-3 and three record, and what did you think of how the Bills played against uh, the Los Angeles Chargers? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit before we, we, we hit record here. You know, look, a great first half. It's kind of been the storyline of the season. And, and then the second half, there were some things that were a little bit concerning. It seems like we – we struggle a little bit to make adjustments to other teams' adjustments. But having said that, it's a win. It's a double-digit win against a pretty good Chargers team. I thought most encouraging, we ran the ball pretty well. And the defense is the headline. And the defense played really well. So, look, there were times where I said, boy, Josh, I thought we had gotten this stuff out of our system yesterday. There were one or two moments where that happened. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with the progress. Don't misunderstand me. I think, you know, playing again without Matt Milano and John Brown and we're winning games and comfortably in control of most of these games, that is a great thing. Um, I guess the bottom line is, Murph, we're at a point where as fans, our expectation is a little bit more. Um, and, and that's a great spot to be because I think what it says is that the potential for this team to be even better than eight and three is there. And that's exciting. You, you hit on an important part with uh, your discussion of the injuries and John Brown's going to be out a couple weeks. Uh, Cody Ford's gone for the year and they, right. they may or may not get Matt Milano soon, maybe even this week. But th that, those are three, well, at least two of those three are critical factors in how far and how deep they can go in the playoffs, I would think, huh? Well, right. I, I don't need to tell you, obviously, Trey Brown is, you know, he's, he's, he's missed a game or two this year. I mean, yeah, you know, look, and and that's the NFL. I think, you know, last year, it's funny. I don't remember there being very many big injuries to the team last year. And it was, right. it was almost, it was, it was almost unusual. Yeah. Um, obviously the NFL is a league where that's, that's part of the, that's part of the deal. Uh, but yes, look, you, and that's the amazing thing about the league is that no matter how good you are, there is an element of luck and that's, you know, that that's avoiding injuries and staying healthy and, it goes without saying that you've got to have, look, us at our best is a very difficult team but you, to, 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 to beat. But you take away some key players like the guys we just talked about, and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, you can see some, some deficiencies. Now, Murph, you've also seen guys like A.J. Klein, who was being vilified on social media. <laughs> A.J. Klein stinks. Last couple of weeks, A.J. Klein's looked like Dick Butkus out there. So <laughs> some guys have stepped up, and that's been great to see too. I wonder what you think about this, Kevin. Um, the Bills are a talented roster. There's no question. They have a lot of good good players. I wonder, is, I thought, yes, uh, the game against the Chargers, um, there was a stark contrast between the coaching staffs of each team and how they, yes. they manage a game. And I don't know that Sean McDermott gets enough credit for how he manages his team, how he manages a game, as he did against the Chargers last Sunday. 
I saw a national reporter, Murph, uh, send something out via social media. Hey, how about these five candidates for coach of the year? And you don't see, you don't see Sean McDermott on there. It's like, boy, how far we've come, right? There's yeah. a time where if the Bills were eight and three, you know, you, you'd, be, you'd be fitting him for a yellow jacket. <laughs> I, I love the stability of where we are. I, I love the front office. I have for a while now. I love the coaching staff. How creative is Brian Dable? I mean, yeah. if nothing else, we're fun to watch. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of been the hallmark of, of the franchise for, for, you know, forever is that the, offensively, at least we've been fun to watch, except the past 15 years, that hasn't been the case as much. But, you know, we're fun to watch. Obviously, Wesley Frazier's a terrific coordinator. McDermott is, you know, to me, I hope we can keep McDermott for the next, you know, long, long, long time because I think he, he gets it. He, he's the perfect coach. And, you know, part of a bigger thing that I've talked about with, with several other, you know, uh, uh, Bill's uh, fans and, and media, Steve Tasker and I talked about this on One Bill's Drive, is the fact that the biggest difference to me with this team, Murph, is, is the front office – doing well in the draft. Like there were years where we would struggle to nail first round picks. Yeah. Now we're na- nailing third and fourth and fifth round picks. And, and when you can do that in the NFL, you can contend. One more Bill's question for you, Kevin. And this goes to your role as a, as a national sportscaster and ESPN sportscaster. It's a familiar lament among Bill's fans for, for years, if not decades. We don't get enough respect. Nobody pays attention to us. Do the Bills get enough uh, – do they get enough exposure? Do they get enough appreciation for this year among the national media and among national football league fans? What do you think? Well, I'll put it to you like this. If the Dallas Cowboys were eight and three, do you think that they'd be getting the same level? You know what I mean? It's like, listen, um, there are big market teams. There are the funny thing to me is that, you know, the bills, the bills fan base, you know, in non COVID times, go walk through an airport and see how many bills hats and, and, and shirts and sweatshirts you see. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, they're not considered a national team in the same vein. And I guess it goes back to, look, I guess it goes back to the number of Lombardi trophies you have. That plays a role. I get it to a degree. I like to, listen, I'm a guy who, when I talk college basketball, I like to hype the mid-major guys. To me, quality is quality. And you should be rewarding the people who warrant coverage as opposed to a team that might be three and seven and one. Uh, but it's the case all I can tell Bills fans is this. Anytime I'm in a sports center conversation and on a show and we have a meeting, if the Bills warrant coverage, I'm speaking up for us. So um, if I'm on a show, I promise you we'll get a fair shake. That's good to know. Hey, um, I want to just switch gears a little bit. An NFL question. Yesterday, the Broncos had to go to a practice squad receiver, Kendall Hilton, as their uh, quarterback. And predictable results, they failed pretty miserably. But you had an interesting tweet about uh, some of the criticism directed his way. Can you talk about that and, and why that may have been unfair to, for people to, to rip uh, Kendall Hilton Hilt, uh, after his game yesterday? I'd love to. You know, one quick thing, Murph, um, I will tell you up front. I don't know everything that went into the decision, but I'll also tell you this. Based on what I know, the Denver Broncos should not have played that game yesterday. I mean, you are putting a team in an impossible situation. By, I understand that their quarterbacks may or may not have controlled the fact that they contracted this virus. But you're putting a guy under center, and you're putting him in danger, and you're giving a team no chance. I don't under – to me – in a year where we've been nimble and we've made a lot of concessions, I think we could have pushed that game back. That's my opinion. I know I want to let you continue, but can I raise this point? Some would argue, I think I would argue, that the Broncos brought it on themselves, that they could have, as the Bills have done, taken one of their quarterbacks, the Bills have done it with Jake Fromm, and separated him from the quarterback group to prevent against that sort of situation. Broncos didn't do it, and they had to pay a price. What do you think of that argument? That's I, 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 I love the fact that the Bills have done that. You make a great point. I just think, look, maybe there could be maybe there could be a two strike deal. I'm not I'm not absolving the Broncos. I don't know what went on inside that quarterback room. I know Dan Orlovsky was very critical of the quarterbacks today. Murph, I'll tell you this: I had COVID, and I'll tell you that I wore a mask all the time. And we've been fastidious, and I think I got it from something that my daughter brought home from school. So I contracted it probably by reading my daughter a bedtime story. All yeah. I'm saying is, and you may and you make a, you make an excellent point. Uh, you've got, I'm all about accountability. I, in, in life, I am. I promise you that. I just, I think you, I think you put the Broncos in an unwinnable situation yesterday. Some would say, like you're saying, maybe they put themselves in that spot. But that's a fair argument. The, back to the tweet that I had. 
a, a buddy of my younger brothers who, you know, is, is in effect a friend of mine, coaches uh, in the area that, that, that Hinton played high school football. He said he is the best quarterback at the high school level he's ever seen. And the guy went one of nine passing in an NFL game yesterday. If that doesn't tell you how good you have to be to play quarterback in the NFL, where a coach who's coached for over a decade in the area said, this guy is the best he's ever seen. And he still has those results. It's remarkable how good you have to be. That's a good point. I want to ask one, you know, one more thing, uh, Kevin, and it's a, it's a combined salute to you. And maybe a, I guess it is a question as well, but you have demonstrated amazing versatility in your career with the play-by-play work along with sports center. Um, and it, it strikes me that might be the key to success in our industry, being able to do a lot, not just to be a one trick pony. Do you agree? I appreciate you saying that. That means a lot to me, Murph, especially coming from you. I'll tell you, it's increasingly so. Um, There was a time, there's been a time since I've been at ESPN. And like you said off the top, it's been over 12 years. There was a time where you needed to be, you needed to specialize. I had bosses saying, you're either this or you're this. And I sort of felt, wait a minute. Number one, I enjoy doing a lot of things. Number two, I think there's value in that. Now, all of a sudden, the pendulum has swung so much where it's like, if you can't do these other things, you're not as valuable. And I flat out have seen that play out for a lot of people where it's like, he, she can't do this. Maybe we need to find someone who can. So here's, here's my advice to anyone who wants to get in the industry. You better get used to saying yes, and you better be able to do a lot of different things because it's so competitive and things are becoming... Uh, you know, so refined that I like to, I like to work hard at anything that's given to me. I like to embrace any challenge I can. I certainly, I'm not, I'm not John Murphy. I'm never going to be Al Michaels. I think I can call a game. Okay. Uh, But I'll tell you this, I'll work as hard as anybody to, to be able to do so, because like you said, you have to be versatile. Great point. Kevin, thanks very much for this. Really appreciate it. Continued success. Thanks for backing the bill so hard. We know you, 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 we know who your favorite team is. That's for sure. Well, you know what? Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. And Murph, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. And my best to everyone for a great holiday season. And go Bills. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Talking now with the man behind Ellicottville Brewing Company, Peter Kreinheater is the founder and owner. And Peter joins us. Peter, thanks very much for coming on with us today. We appreciate it. Good morning. It's a, it's a remarkable 25-year history of Ellicott Brewing Company, and I've read about it a little bit. It started uh, from a trip you took to Vail, Colorado, huh? It sure did. I was uh, 22 years old, and I'm, I go out to a trip out to ski out west, and I'm, you know, there's a, I think the first one, well, I think the first mountain brew pub was in, was in Vail called the Hubcap. And uh, right now it's, you know, was, has been bulldozered and it's been, you know, giant buildings been built, but the Hubcap was this place where, uh, you know, it's first brew pub I think I was ever at. And I'm thinking, you know, wow, if Vale Vail has a brew pub here, I could probably have one in Ellicottville. <laughs> and uh, so I basically went off to brewing school after that, you know, and um, went, to, went to UC Davis and then came back a year later. And, uh, well, we had this, there was a building in Ellicottville where we're at now that was, a, was just vacant. And we renovated it and um, started the pub. You know, in 1995, no one really, I mean, better beers didn't exist and your model was either, um, Pilsner Urquell or, or Sierra Nevada, right? Right. Yeah. And, Peter, uh, yeah. Are you a native of Ellicottville? Did you grow up there? Is that why you brought it back? There? In Hamburg. Oh, in Hamburg. I'm yep. I'm a Franny's guy. Okay. But you skied in Ellicottville and obviously 25 years ago, you saw something in, in the little village of Ellicottville that, uh, that really no one else saw, right? You, did you, did you envision it would become kind of the, the mecca that it is now for skiers and partiers and people who just I mean, like that. Ellicottville yeah. is just a place, you know, um, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up, I was like a KB rat, right? I would ski like almost every day at KB. And then those special three or four trips down to Holiday Valley to ski during the winter times were like, you know, you take a day off of school and it was a big deal back then, right? Sure. Yeah. And you didn't have cell phones to check out the weather. You just came. So, um, you go down, and then and then when I was out of out of school, when I finished graduate school, and I came back from D.C., um, I spent a summer here or the winter here, and I was at Greg Dechterbrun's. I don't know if you know Greg Dechterbrun, but I worked with Greg in his ski shop, and then I, right. I taught skiing at the valley, and and then um, and I was kind of like you know you're in that you're in your early twenties, you're trying to figure out what the hell you're gonna do with your life, right? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I went on this trip, and 
And I really kind of wanted to be in manufacturing at that point in my life, like whether it was um, uh, beer or whether it was something else. I just really wanted to kind of get into manufacturing because I never even worked in a restaurant before. So when I, when I was introduced to the hubcap and I saw kind of both aspects, and then at the time, uh, my wife and I were dating in Ellicottville. So she worked at Holiday Valley and uh, we were dating and it just seemed like a nice place to be. You know, like when you pass, most people say when they pass the Genesee, they decompress. Um, but Alcaville is a really nice place to be, you know, it's like, um, this little special spot. So why, you know, it all kind of, uh, it kind of gelled together and I kind of like the building. It's the character was almost perfect for what we were trying to do and for ski town. And we just nibbled along each way. And I've had good people along the whole way. And we, uh, the first year we opened was probably the most snow we've had since we've opened. Wow. <laughs> it, snowed like, it snowed like four inches every single day for like three oh, months. Wow. It was great. What was the first beer that you brewed at Ellicottville Brewing Company? Uh, it was the Two Brothers Pale Ale, and that became like the, the thing in Buffalo for a while. It was like um, the alternative to, you know, it was an American Pale Ale. And uh, it was, uh, you know, one of the first locally big hop beers you know, and, you know, American Pale Ale, you have that little base caramel malt to it, not like the Nippas and all the East Coast IPAs today, but the Two Brothers Pale Ale became like uh, this really cool thing in Western New York, and, and, um, and it really was all, and for our first five years, I was a single varietal hop brewery, like, I really was focused in on just using single varietal hops in each beer, so when someone tasted a beer, you gotta remember, craft brewing was so infant back then right that to introduce somebody and trying to educate them on a single what the flavor of a hop is and sort of mixing all these hops together and kind of balancing them all out i thought well, let's just do like the wineries we're doing cabernets infidels chardonnay right yep. and um so that's how i started out that was the approach for, the, for at least the first five years of brewing what do you think happened to craft brewing that that made it explode i mean you, as you said 25 years ago it was infinitesimal Super interesting. I, you know, I have, I have some positives and negatives on that. But, the, okay. you know, when I, in 90, we opened in, 90, in September of 95. Um, April of 94, if I'm not mistaken, the Craft Brewers Show was also in Boston. And I go to this Craft Brewers Show in Boston. And um, Finn and I from Southern Tier, he's my brother-in-law. Finn was our first brewer. So Finn and I met at brewing school. So he came back and we brewed together here in Ellicottville. And uh, so Finn and I are in Boston, and uh, we're like, holy shit, what are all these people doing here? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, this business is a lot bigger than we think it is. You know, we're like, you know I'm 22, and he's like 19, right? Yeah. And uh, so it's really kind of funny. And uh, so we come back from Boston, and, you know, we do our, you know, we, we order this uh, Bohemian 10-barrel brew house group up system, which is great. It worked great. She's still, we still operate around her every day. She's kind of in semi-retirement, though. So, um, so why, well, how, how did it explode? So, you know, it went through that hole from 95 to 2000. It was very slippery slope. Uh, pubs did pretty good. Then micros weren't doing good at all. And then you had the, uh, the internet boom of 99 to 2001. That changed a lot of people's perspective on money because all of a sudden people had lots of money. And I, then I felt that um, some of the, the tech money and, some, and then trust funders got in, involved in craft brewing. It's a cool thing to do, right? Yeah. So a lot of trust fund money went into the craft brewing scene. And a lot of guys that picked up the bootstraps and quit their jobs and did the same thing. But, you know, um, and we kind of moved ahead. And then all of a sudden it switched from pubs to micros. And that's when Southern Tier, well, Finn, went, Finn wanted to go. Finn really wanted to make lots of beer like he does now. So Finn left Ellicottville and went to Chicago to get his master's at Siebel. And while he was at Siebel, um, he was working at Goose Island as the packaging director under Matt Brendelson, who now is from Firestone Walker. So then Matt goes to Firestone Walker. Finn becomes head brewer at Goose. He gets all that experience on a big system. And then when my sister-in-law and he get married, they come back and they open up Southern Tier. And right at 2004, good timing, is when micros start developing. In my, in my world for Ellicottville, you know, I'm still just focusing on paying on down in debt. You know, I was, I was actually in graduate school. You know, I always want to focus on building a big brewery. And then, uh, um, so then the, the 2004 to 2008 
is really when the, the regional craft brewers started evolving. And then I would say you head now into 13, 14, and then, of course, the big bombshell. Constellation pays a billion dollars for Ballast Point. And then every idiot who has money wants to open a brewery, right? Okay. So literally you go from 3,000 brewers in 2013, 14 to 8,000 breweries last year. It's, that's, that's how incredible, right? Yeah. But Paul Gatza from the BA, who's awesome, he goes, well, this is, that's, all the good things are, okay, we have 8,000 breweries now. And, you know, are we saturated? And Paul Gatz is like, you know, look at the averages. Most of the breweries are doing 500 barrels or less. So that's pretty, you know, it's, that's, that's, like you sit back and say to yourself, okay, all right. Maybe they're doing 1,000 or 1,500 or less right now. And, uh, and so the, in the scope of things, um, yeah, a lot more competitions out there. Especially when it comes, you know, think about then, then, then the consolidation happens, right? Between Canarchy and AB and everyone's buying each other up. I mean, it's a dynamic industry, to be honest, to be honest with you. Sure. It is yeah. crazy. But one, one thing that's been very helpful on, on like for us, our, our history of going, going slow, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm like the guy that sits around, just absorbs everything. I don't really jump into things. Uh-huh. I like, it's like, I got to absorb for a long time. I don't know whether it's procrastination or just kind of really kind of studying what's going on. Right. Um, it's very seldom my personality is, Hey, let's just go and see if this works out kind of thing. Right. <laughs> I moved steady and slow. And in 2013, we decided to um, do an expansion here in Ellicottville and put in a, a 30 barrel Esau Huber unit from Germany. And uh, it was really a great project with the Germans. And then this building we built, um, at that time, though, Southern Tier was still, we co-packed, they contracted our bottle business, right? And then when Southern Tier, um, when Finn took on partners from private equity guys, they didn't want to contract anymore. So Finn's like, you know, Pete, you're going to have to start bottling your own beer. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is <laughs> August of, uh, four, of 13. So August of 13, Finn tells me, you know, I'll give you six months, but I'll help you, fig- I'll help you figure out this whole bottling thing. It's not that bad. So long story short is, but the brand new building that we just built here in Ellicottville wasn't built for packaging. Right. You know, built because we were just going to do all the draft in Ellicottville. And then the tier was going to do bottles. Again, my, my shyness become a very big brewer, right? I just want to, you know, do my thing and, you know, and have, you know, there's so life has all these different opportunities that lie in front of you. You just got to pick and choose which ones you want to do. Right. Right. So then, uh, and then 2000, we finished it. We went to putting, so in 14, February of 14, we put in our first, our, we put in a bottling line here, right? And then um, quickly we're learning that we're running out of space. I mean, at the, the same time, we had a warehouse in Ellicottville, right? Just to, you know, you have, a, you, have to, you, know, you can't order like a pallet of bottles. You, you got to order uh, truckloads, right? Right. We're going to put a truckloads of, of packaging and bottles and everything like that. So we got a warehouse and then, then, uh, that a friend of mine brings to my attention in Little Valley, there is a old uh, 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 Allegheny beverage uh, warehouse in Little Valley that was shuttered in uh, 2000. I don't know. That was 15, 2011. It was shuttered. So this big giant warehouse with coolers and loading docks and refrigeration. And so we moved in there as a warehouse. And then eventually we we're like, okay, we're going to have to build a bigger brewery. So we at we built um, uh, we put a sixty barrel brew house Isa Hoover sixty barrel there with um, we have a hunt with five hundred eighty barrel fermenters and four sixties and um, so that was a good thing because Little Valley is a really nice place and I really believe that Little Valley like you know a new business can come into a, a small community and all ships can rise and um, and I think it's a great spot for overflow for Ellicottville, kind of like in Vale, you have Vale, you have Avon and Edwards. It's kind of like these other communities have surfaced because of the, the, the main town's done well. Right. And, and it's a great place for people to live. It's more affordable than Ellicottville. And, and I really like being a little valley. There's this great community there. Huh. And so the space is on 10 acres. And I think long-term, that's my long-term fun, fun project with a, with a, um, 
and, and part of the project, which, you know, is not to have a, a, a history museum of like Ellicottville Brewing, I want to have a um, science museum of brewing, a brewing science center. Kind of like um, Corning has Corning Glass, right? Right. And kids go there, and kids are so inspired by Corning Glass and like what you can do. You never know how to inspire a kid, right? So I want to build this science center, and it's, you know, and, and, and we, I already had all of our main suppliers on board to eventually, once we get it open, to build exhibits on and yeast and microbiology. We have, a, we have a wastewater treatment plant there, you know, how to grow hops, how to grow malt, and then we have a field for growing all this stuff. And it becomes this place where you can bring kids in and, like, show them careers. Sure, yeah. In an industry that's not really, it's still proliferating. Sure. And uh, so that's my, my goal is to be at that end of it. And then, you know, have a brewery that's, you know, 25,000 barrels and we just kind of do it every day. And, you know, nothing too crazy. And um, and then still kind of like hunker down in the southern tier. I like I like being down here. You know, it's like, yeah. this little, it's like this little zone down here, you know. I got you. You're in Ellicottville. You're in Little Valley, as you said, Fredonia. And in Bemis Point, you have yeah. an Ellicottville Brewing Company at the old surf club right in, right in the yeah. main four corners of Bemis Point. Tell me about that project. Um, a group from New York came in and renovated the surf club in 2005. It's an iconic place, by the way, isn't it? The surf it club was. It was, right? And in 2005, these guys from New York, well, Chautauqua people, but they're from New York, they came in and they, um, man, they invested a lot of money in that property. I mean, a lot of money. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I bet you in 10 years I'll pick up that place for five cents on the dollar. And I did. Because... Because they're not restaurant people, or they weren't right. pub people. They were just investors, right? And it's a and, seasonal uh, place, right? That has yeah, not it's so seasonal. It's not like Ellicottville. Ellicottville is, but I always wanted to have this summer presence. I thought it was important for our, we're expanding into Pittsburgh. We're expanding, you know, further west into Ohio. That's our big market for us. And it made sense because so many people summer in Chautauqua from Pittsburgh and Ohio. And so it was a branding opportunity. And, uh, and it's been a lot of fun because it has the best double sunset you'll ever see in your life. Because <laughs> the sun sets on Bemis Bay yeah. and it sets about 15, 20 minutes later on Lake Erie. Yeah. So you get the sunset on Bemis Bay, then you get this big sunset off of Lake Erie. <laughs> I never thought of that. I've read about um, Elegantville Brewing Company. Uh, it, was, it was described as far as your overriding uh, philosophy, I guess, is uh, is. You mix old world brewing styles with winter worshiping ski culture. What do you think that means? Is that true, first of all? And what do you think that means? Well, you know, in, in 95, the ski culture was still that fun ski bum town. I got to sure. tell you, that's how I ended up here. I was a ski bum for a year, right? You know? And uh, there were some characters from Toronto that were funny as hell. And, and they, were, they would have, uh, oh, there was a bar next door to us. And he built a giant mound of snow inside of his bar, and they would snowboard out the front door. I mean, like, isn't that great? Like, who does that today, right? <laughs> so those are party days. Ellicottville has changed a lot. It's, uh, it's more family-orientated. The party scene's not as high. Uh, you can still come here and have a good time, but people definitely have traded up and drink less. And, um, but overall, the culture of a ski town, um, where I – initially, Holiday Valley had an eight-hour ski pass. And it went from 8.30 in the morning to 3.30 every day. Huh. And Opera would start in Ellicottville from 3.30, 3 o'clock to 7. It was, it was, that's how it was for 35 years. And um, when Holiday Valley invented the eight-hour ski any time pass, well, the Opera kind of went away because people would start at 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, whatever, and then would ski into the night. And then there never was this core that went downtown and had Opera ski anymore, right? It kind of moved into the night. But that was a big game changer. That changed the, the ski culture a little bit is when that pass changed. Um, for better or for worse, I don't know. It just changed everything. Um, but the culture of the town is great because you get very, very interesting people. And they come in and they bring their thoughts and their ideas from all over the world. And I'm saying all over the world. And they really genuinely enjoy our space, our town. Ellicottville's not all about the brewery. Ellicottville's about every other 18 bars and restaurants in town. It's a brand because we wouldn't be successful without them and they wouldn't be successful without us. And um, it just creates this um, little bit of a Norman Rockwell feel. But it, everyone here is, um, uh, just seems to be in a, in, a, um, in a very down mode. You ever like go to lunch in Buffalo? I don't know. Like, go to any place in Buffalo. It's always like, I got to be at lunch in 45 minutes. Da, da, da. Always like, well, we go open for lunch, right? It's an hour, two hour lunch. 
every day. <laughs> so when people are here, it's never too fast, right? Yeah, kind of like goes my motto: never too fast. Yeah, but we really believe in this whole philosophy. It's called entertaining people, and and uh, or brew to entertain. And so we brew, we brew beer. Do all these different interesting names. Dan Minner, I which I didn't mention yet. Dan Minner's our head brewer. He's been here for, gosh, 15 years. And uh, he's part of the fabric. Dan is integral in what we do, whether we open a new – we opened a new taqueria this week. I saw that. And uh, that was a good play for us. It was right on Main Street. It's mainly a, a, a tap and bottle bottle shop. So it's exciting for us because um, the uh, – um, we're just not showcasing all of our products that are New York state, you know, uh, sourced, but we're bringing in brewers from like, we're focusing on the Hudson Valley for now in the five boroughs. And then we'll share those products that, you know, Western New Yorkers normally don't get. And uh, we just got our license this week. It's been an awful long process. I feel bad for those guys at the SLA, but they're working hard. And uh, so that, on top of that, the uh, the idea of a taqueria attached to it was that um, Dan and I have collaborated with a brewery in Mexico City in 2019. I've done lots of collaboration beers and I've been back and forth a lot. Like I go tomorrow to go down to, Mex down to Mexico, Mexico City, work with these guys on new beers. And we they were like, they take us around all these Mexico City street taco places, right? In the middle of the night. And when Dan and I like, well, we, we better do a taqueria then. So it's a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the uh, tap and bottle taqueria, right? By Elgin Brewery. And uh, so we got all this, we had all the equipment made in Mexico City, these El Pastor units. And so um, it has this, uh, you know, this real authentic uh, Mexican thing, the ingredients, the tortillas, everything. It's fantastic. You know, but, but it's a draft and tap house first, a bottle shop first. Oh, by the way, we have, we have some really cool street tacos. So, um, and, that's, and that was one of the, the culinary parts missing in Ellicottville was, was, uh, was Mexican. So it should go well. We're happy yeah. with it. We renovated yeah. a little gin mill, and that's be good. So, Peter, tell one of your um, maybe your biggest product at Ellicottville Brewing Company is a blueberry wheat ale. Tell me about that. How that became your a signature product? Is it yeah. your signature product? You think? It's it's the signature product. I mean, uh, it's um, I talked to you briefly earlier, but you know, I it's it's a fun because in we uh, started out in two thousand four. Um, I was talking to some brewers at a craft beer show in Maine from Maine. And um, it was Sea Dog, and Sea Dog, of course, does their blueberry. And, and at that point, fruit beers were just heading out of the market. Like people were kind of over fruit beers uh, in 2004. And you know, like anything, when people, a lot of people were getting out, you might want to get in. So I studied uh, all different kinds of fruit purees, fruit, fruit blueberry extracts, and, and we went and I, it was uh, five different methods of brewing it. I went back to the first one, and basically, what I really discovered, what we liked the best, was a nice crisp wheat beer that had a very subtle blueberry aroma to it and that's how i think it's been so successful because the other blueberry products out there are either like blue um the one from Anheuser bush is like literally blue it's like malt syrup it's gross and then you have uh other ones uh, actually the one closest to it is um uh fathead's bumbleberry so but i, I kind of have an idea how they did that but it was pretty funny but uh, I, I like it because, you know, Buffalo, Western New York is really tied on to the blueberry. And it's our entry-level craft. You know, I've never gone and said, hey, we're a big, you know, um, a big hoppy brewery. We're or a big malty brewery. You know, I think when people visit, like, our town, um, we have visitors from all, again, all over the world, all over New York. And to have an entry-level product like the, like the blueberry wheat, because there's still a lot more domestic drinkers out there than there are craft. So if I can convert more of those domestics by with an entry level blueberry, it's great. And then they step up to a lot of other things. You do have and, a lot of other things. I, I saw sponge candy flavors and, and listed yeah, in your yeah, products, a pineapple the, shake. The pineapple shake. The pineapple Where shake are you going with this? Really good. <laughs> well, again, we're, we're focusing on oh, one other idea. We, we decided to do, you know, beer collaborations are really popular, right? Like, um, you're like Hamburg and I did a beer for a while, or if you do, everyone does these beers together. And I was kind of tired of doing beer collaborations. And um, <laughs> so then I decided that, okay, we have these really interesting businesses around Western New York. Let's try and figure out how their products can go with our beer. So Platters is one of them. We did the sponge candy with them uh, two years ago. Um, we just came out with the Platters um, uh, chocolate raspberry truffle in our Christmas variety pack. <laughs> and the platters people are awesome like 
Platter's chocolates, the family, are outstanding. They're the most one of the most. They're outstanding. To, you know, to, to do a project with, and um, we partnered with uh, the other one is our Pumpkinville. Like Pumpkinville's right down the street here from Ellicottville. So we de- we designed a because because of, of Southern Cheer, we, I stayed away from pumpkins for a long time. You know, I'm like Finn. I won't touch the pumpkins. So, uh, but but we were on this thing of doing uh, locally business and collaborating with businesses, and so we did Pumpkinville, and that was really good because it helped promote Pumpkinville. Right for visitation in, in Cat sure. County, and then um, um, what are the other collabs we've done? Let me look at the shelf over here. Oh, the uh, um, the jelly donut. So in Gowan in uh, Cherry Creek, yeah, listen to this one. So in Cherry Creek, uh, there's the the one of the last original Super Duper's left. And I don't okay. know if you were a kid. If you, I lived in Hamburg, and there was a Super Duper on uh, Camp Road in the village. And every Sunday after St. Peter and Paul's, we go and get these jelly donuts. They're just donuts from Super Duper. They're the best donuts ever. <laughs> so they, so the, so this, uh, um, the whole, the, um, the store in, in Cherry Creek still makes these donuts. And my God, it's worth the hour drive to Cherry Creek to go get the donuts. And uh, so we did this cherry donut um, a beer. And, and people, it's funny. I'm like, this is not going to sell. Like, who the hell wants to drink donut beer? But it goes back to the segment where dessert beers were popular a year and a half ago. So dessert beers, is, or they're called pastry beers, right? So pastry beers gained some great notoriety because uh, in Philly, there's that guy that had, what's it called? Uh, kneading hands or heavy hands or what's that brewery in Philly? I don't know. Um, he's the guy who invented the, the milkshake. Okay. Uh, I think it's called kneading hands, brewery in Philly. Anyhow, so he was, he's been really creative. Like he does this, just uh, creates the pastry beers, he creates the milkshakes. And so, um, but you know, it's kind of fun because you, you know, you got, you have to really look at um, what you want to do as a brewery. And then um, it's, you know, and I think everyone's so pretty well creative in this, in this industry that people say, oh, someone copied me or someone copied my name. But you got to tell you, there's 8,000 breweries and they're all creative and there's going to be a lot of overlap somehow, right? Because a lot of people have the same type of thought process. They just don't, no one's really copying people. They're just coming right. up with their own stuff, you know? So, yeah. Peter, last thing I have for you, where, um, are you content where Ellicottville Brewing Company is now? You mentioned a moment ago that I think you were kidding, but maybe not. You said your motto was never too fast. We don't want, don't want to go too fast. Do you want to expand Ellicottville Brewing Company? Or are you pretty happy where you're at right now? So, um, this year we'll probably finish out. I mean, COVID we're kind of flat from last year. We're going to finish out sure. probably fifteen thousand barrels. My goal is really to be at twenty-five thousand barrels. And so, you know, I believe in, in, in now being in twenty-five years. You know, either you go really big, or you stay relatively small. Because if you get between that thirty-five and sixty thousand barrels of no man, it's like a desert. You're not too big. You're not too small. And then you become a target at like 55,000 barrels by bigger brewers. And all of a sudden there's money against you. And then you hit that 60,000 barrel mark. And then you got to pay the tax man a lot of money. It goes from, it goes from $7 a barrel to $18 a barrel, right? And like retroactive. So once you go over 60,000 barrels, you better have that $780,000 check waiting for Uncle Sam. <laughs> and uh, so that's a big deterrent. So... But I like in this zone because, you know, at the end of the day, like we have 194 employees right now, right? 111 FTEs. God, there's a lot, it's a lot going on to manage with COVID. And I, I can't really see myself really opening up more of a restaurant scene. And I really don't want to franchise. That's a lot of legalities. You know, you probably know about legalities of franchising. But I like being in the Southern Tier. If I can expand our brewery footprint and stay relevant in the beer scene, um, we just picked up, we start in uh, April, at the end of second quarter, April, we start in Maryland, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Maine. Um, we had a few wholesalers that wanted to take us into those states. And you know what's interesting? When the guys looked at our deck, when we, you know, uh, some people put them out there for us, they're like, oh, you know, we're not taking on any more breweries and so on and so forth. But they looked at our deck and they're like, oh my God, your portfolio is not full of a bunch of nippas and pale IPA. <laughs> so... You got donut beer. What the hell is a donut beer, right? So, yeah. um, <laughs> so I guess, you know, us focusing on um, a style that we're good at. We're good at this fruit thing. 
Um, barrel aging is something that I, I want to get into. Like, uh, uh, you see, this is my, this is, this is supposed to be my birthday present this year. See those? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A bunch of froders. But that yep. got on, maybe that'll be next year's birthday present. <laughs> yeah. I want <laughs> But um, I like to get into uh, getting some froders and do some nice barrel aging and stuff and, you know, keep it, um, keep it relatively, you know, our entire staff too, right? I don't want to grind them to the bone and stress everybody out, right? Because at the end of the day, they still want to go mountain biking and skiing in town. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Peter, thanks for this. It's great talking yeah. to you. Continued success. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. It was nice meeting you. Thank you. Well, thanks for checking out Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff today. We do this every week, and you can download any of the first 12 podcasts as much as you'd like, whether you, wherever you get your podcast from. We've had great discussions over the weeks. Guests like Wade Phillips, Chris Berman, Steve Tasker, James Lofton, Eric Wood, many others. We've had good beer discussion also, including Ian Hamilton, Sullivan's Brewmaster, and others. I want to thank our guests this week, Kevin Connors of ESPN, the host of SportsCenter. He is busy doing a lot of college basketball on ESPN these days. A consummate professional sportscaster. He's a big Bills fan, too, you can probably tell. I want to thank Peter Kreinheader from Ellicottville Brewing Company, the founder, their CEO. Great stories about his start, about his journey, and the future of Ellicottville Brewing. We are sponsored by Sullivan's Brewing Company of Kilkenny, Ireland, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. You know, even in Code Orange or Code Yellow, wherever you find yourselves, uh, Sullivan's is available at pubs and taverns and stores in Buffalo or all over upstate New York. Northern New Jersey, New York City, Long Island, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, Atlanta, and Savannah, Georgia, and expanding all over the United States. If you have a comment on our podcast, an idea, maybe a critique, feel free to shoot us an email at Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. One word, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. Or you can visit us on Twitter at Murph Bills. I want to thank our producer, Pat Feldball, and thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the Beards.